On today's episode, I'm talking about what the causes and solutions are to a cat who keeps toileting in the kitchen, which is clearly disgusting. I'm then moving on to how to help an old dog who's showing signs of weakness and starting to suffer from some mobility issues before then moving on to how to help a dog cope who's starting to show signs of senility and dementia. But before we get into all that, here's the intro. Welcome to Call the Vet, the show that answers all your dog and cat questions so they can live healthier, happier lives. And here's your host, veterinarian Dr. Alex Avery. Welcome to episode 27 of Call the Vet. I'm Dr. Alex, the veterinarian behind rpetshealth.com, and my aim is to give you the information that you need really to help you look after your dog or your cat to the best of your ability. And I'm really grateful that you're here sharing your valuable time with me. I know there's loads of other things that you could be doing or other things that you could be listening to. And so I hope you find some kind of really great facts, some great information out of these podcasts. And if we're meeting for the first time, then, you know, make sure that you're subscribed to this podcast if you enjoy today's show. I've got loads more valuable episodes lined up that you won't want to miss and you can also get your question answered just by heading over to callthevet.org. And so I'm going to jump into my first question which was sent in by Brandy and Brandy wrote in and said that um, she's got a two-year-old tabby. He knows where the litter box is but is starting peeing next to the kitchen sink and pooping under the table. Uh, so what Brandy did is that um, she blocked him from going into the kitchen and then he goes into his litter box but as soon as he's reintroduced to the kitchen he repeats this process. What can Brandy do to stop this problem? So the first thing to say is that spraying or urinating and also defecating outside the litter box uh, in in cats who's otherwise well um, litter trained, then it's generally due to either an illness or a health issue or because of a stress problem. So health problems can be numerous. They can include things like cystitis, so an inflammation of the bladder. Um, that's sometimes uh, sometimes an infection, sometimes due to a bladder infection, but very often actually it's uh, just a general inflammation. Um, and that's probably the most common problem of urinating outside the litter tray, especially, and especially in younger cats. Now you can also get things like arthritis, so an older cat who's struggling to get into the litter tray may start toileting kind of outside the tray if they've got kidney disease, diabetes, if they've got diarrhea and they're not making the toilet. So either they're producing a lot of kind of stools and when you got to go, you got to go, or they're producing a lot of urine and their kidneys aren't concentrating the urine in kidney disease and diabetes, for example, and then they need the toilet and just can't quite get there. So we've definitely got to have it uh, in mind that health problems could be causing this. That said, stress is the most likely cause if the cat is otherwise toileting normally when they're excluded from the kitchen. So are they going to the litter tray? Are they assuming the normal position, kind of squatting down? Are they toileting normally? You know, they're not straining a lot. They're otherwise, you know, absolutely fine. Then stress is the most likely cause. And there's a number of reasons for stress. Sometimes it's just impossible to get to the bottom of it. But stressful things can include things like litter tray placement. So is it overlooked by other cats, even if it's through a window? Is the litter tray right by the um, by the cat flap or by the window or by, you know, somewhere where other cats can see in? And so the cat feels threatened when they're using that tray so cats really do like their privacy are there other cats coming into the house that's another big cause of stress it's a huge cause of stress probably one of the biggest ones that there is um, if you imagine someone who you don't want there coming into your house you can kind of then sympathize with your cat and it's actually really common especially if you've got your food bowls your cat's food bowls um, by the by the cat flap 
Um, you know, they're coming in, they're tempted to come in. And you may not even notice that because it may be happening at night. And, you know, if you're at the other end of the house, you're not hearing that happening. Other signs, of, other causes of stress can be things like fireworks, roadworks, um, renovation work in your house. It can be even just house visitors, a new baby, or even just a change of routine. And sometimes even just a change of weather as well can be enough to to set off a problem. So, what we need to do is we need to, well, first we need to make sure that there is no health problem. So that's always going to be a good thing to do to get your cat checked over, especially if it's a recurring problem that you can't seem to get to the bottom of. Then we always need to be mindful that there might be a health problem that needs specific treatment. And yeah, taking your cat to the vet, if possible, get a urine sample, maybe take a stool sample as well in this cat's case, um, just to make sure that there's nothing else that we should be doing or worrying about or investigating. Um so make sure there's no health concerns. Uh, stress relief is the next thing that we need to try and do. So if you can identify the cause of stress and then try and eliminate that or reduce that, then that's fantastic. Um, we need to make sure there's enough resources. So resources um, uh, is very important um, to cats, especially if this is a multi-cat household. And I'm not sure if Brandy's got one or just one cat or if there's more cats in the house but for those of you with multiple cats in the house then competition for um, litter boxes litter trays for food bowls for water bowls uh, is a really big source of stress and the recommendations generally are that there should be one more than the number of cats that there are in the house so there's if you've got three cats for example you should have four litter trays four food bowls four water bowls all in separate locations and certainly food water and um, should be separate from litter trays so yeah that's one one thing we can do secure the house is another way so make sure that you don't have strange cats coming into your house stressing your cat out you can do that with uh, special cat flaps so they can either be uh, the magnetic ones that um, you know your cat wears a uh, uh, kind of a magnet around their neck attached to their collar to open up the litter tray but you can also get microchip cat flaps now i've actually got a microchip cat flap um it's a sure flap um i'll leave a link in the show notes um, of my review of that i've had that for probably about seven years now or so and the plastic's getting a little bit brittle because it's been in the sun and it's actually been with me kind of to se- on several house moves but it's still working really well and i definitely recommend those if you've got other cats coming into the house it just works with your cat's normal microchip uh and yeah they're fantastic um screen windows so if you've got um cats kind of looking in even if they can't come in then actually if you can put like a bit of frosting screening or something like that on the window so your cat can't see them that will help um and then litter tray placement is also really important so cats like i say they don't like being overlooked but also they don't like the ability or the potential for another cat to kind of leap out and pounce on them so they often were quite like kind of the the trays being in a corner because that way they can view the rest of the room and there's no way that another cat can be hiding and kind of pounce out on them um, and then other forms of stress relief or other things that we can help with stress to reduce stress it include things like pheromones. So there's something called Felloway, which is uh, a, a naturally produced pheromone that cats do uh, that cats produce when they rub their cheeks against something. They're releasing this pheromone into their environment that lets them know that this is their territory, this is their safe space, and that they can you know really relax in their home environment. So Felloway is the synthetic version of that pheromone, and it comes in. Uh, like a plug-in air diffuser kind of air freshener kind of thing like we can't smell it you won't notice it's there but your cat will and it also comes as a spray which is uh great for things 
things like um, car travel if you're taking your cat to the vet maybe not so much in this in this situation and then there are other supplements of so things like Carmex or Zilkeen can also help they're kind of herbal supplements they've got things in them that that may be beneficial just to help relax your cat now for serious stressful situations um, and for seriously stressed cats there are uh, pharmaceutical drugs that can be used to help reduce that stress but that would definitely be something to talk with your vet and is generally not the first thing that we reach for when we're thinking about dealing with a cat who's peeing or or pooing outside of the litter tray. Um, Other things um, I should mention as well is that some cats are really fussy with the litter. So maybe just try changing the litter. That might help. So they might not like a scented litter if that's what you're choosing. They might not like a clay-based litter because that can clump in their feet and they really don't like it. And cats, if they don't like something, they're not going to do it. Um, You know, they were kind of put on this world to test us from that point of view and that, you know, they are their own masters. So changing litter might be another helpful suggestion. And then the other important thing is to make sure you clean up properly after your cats are both where they're peeing and where they're pooping outside of the tray because cats will often be attracted back to the same spots again and again by what's in their stool and in their urine and they'll just keep going back because it will become their their toilet because of the scent that is given off so don't use a bleach or an ammonia based cleaner um the best thing to do is use an enzymatic cleaner so that's got enzymes in it that will help break down everything that's in the urine and in the poop and stop your cat uh, being attracted back and again i'll leave links to those in the show notes and so at this point before i jump into the next question i just wanted to let you know that this podcast today is brought to you by my free guide to solving problem peeing in cats and also my guide to stressing cats so these guides are per these guys are perfect for helping you recognize the signs of stress in your cat helping you get to the bottom of them helping you to come up with a strategy to help reduce the stress in your cat and then giving you some excellent pointers to help solve problem peeing in cats so if you're having any of those problems and even if you're wondering if your cat might be stressed and believe me it is actually a really common thing that a lot of us don't recognize in our cats then make sure you head over to ourpetshealth.com resources to download these free guides today And then up next is a question from Wendy who writes, right now I have an aging chocolate lab who seems to be having some cognitive difficulties or is just becoming defiant and demanding. He's been well trained with a personal trainer for years and he's regressed. When I crate him at night, he barks until he falls asleep. He repeats this in the morning when he wakes at five o'clock in the morning. I try not to respond as I'm trying not to reinforce the behaviour. What else should I do? And then Wendy also adds that he also seems to be having some spinal problems and weakening in his hind end what can i do to help him maintain his strength okay so there's really a couple of questions here and rather than kind of cram my answer into one slot i'm going to actually break this down into two separate questions and they're going to be how to help a dog with weakness in his back end and spinal problems and then how to help a dog who's showing signs of senility and dementia and so i'm going to tackle the issue with comfort and mobility first so recognizing the signs of pain and taking action early is really important so you know it's great that Wendy has recognised that that her dog is struggling and that he seems to be yeah weak in his back end he's maybe having some spinal problems so recognizing that problem is really important but taking action is important to, as well too too many times unfortunately signs of pain are not recognized as signs of pain and they're then if they are kind of recognized that oh, okay my dog's a little bit uncomfortable then they're just taken as part of the normal aging process that you know it's not important that we do anything it's nothing that we can actually do and and 
your dog is just left to live with that. So neither of those situations should be the case. But once we've recognised the signs of pain and we want to take early action, we actually need to be certain of that diagnosis. So Wendy's dog is an older chocolate lab and you know labradors they are you know really high sufferers with arthritis although a lot of dogs are sufferers with arthritis and maybe we're just not picking up on that but you know labradors they do get arthritis especially in their back end so in their hips um in their knees um you know potentially also in their backs but you know uh, wendy also says spinal problems and you know it might be that there is a, a disc disease there's a slip disc so intervertebral disc disease something like that going on now that's not something that we'll often see in labs but you know it just goes to show it is really important that we're getting a proper diagnosis because the treatment of those may well be actually very different. And I'm actually next week, I've got a question all about intervertebral disc disease, so slip discs in dogs. So make sure you tune in uh, next week to, to hear all about that. But if we assume that Wendy's dog has arthritis, you know, what can we do to help him kind of cope with you know maybe improve his mobility certainly maintain the ability that he the mobility that he's got uh you know and and lessen the impact that this debilitating disease has and improve wendy's dog's comfort well there's kind of seven key uh, strategies or key parts of any arthritis management plan certainly in my opinion and so any arthritis management plan should involve at least considering all of these things so the first one of those which is absolutely huge and something that I believe very strongly about is that's important for all dogs not just arthritic dogs is weight management so obesity and being overweight is incredibly common uh, it's a case that you know up to or even over 60 percent of dogs are classified as either overweight or obese and we know that a weight loss of just about six percent of body weight can make a big difference in comfort levels in arthritic dogs so if you do nothing else and your dog is overweight if they lose a little bit of weight even if they don't get down to their ideal weight then that is going to help their comfort level so weight management is really key so recognizing whether your dog is a healthy weight whether they're you know piling on slightly too many pounds or whether there's a serious problem with obesity is really really important now you can obviously talk to your vet about that we can do something called a condition score and i'll leave links to that in the in the show notes as well that lets you know how we can go about doing that and and you know then coming up with a weight loss plan which is a topic for another day again you know i'll leave links to those in the show notes because i've written um several articles about that um so that's step one step two is nutrition so giving optimum nutrition so that can be actually a, a weight loss diet it could also be an arthritis specific diet and they do have very good evidence behind them so things like our hills jd uh would be the kind of the classic one there but there are other diets that are designed with the arthritic dog in mind that have been shown to improve comfort levels significantly in dogs that are fed those so they work by a number of different ways uh the big one is the component the inclusion of uh, omega fatty acids so our fish oil um essential fatty acids which have a you know can have a really good anti-inflammatory effect they've also got glucosamine and chondroitin in them they've got things in them that help maintain muscle mass and help reduce uh kind of fat deposition or improve fat burning rather than muscle burning if we're kind of trying to lose weight so optimum nutrition is you know is is very important step three is environmental modification so that involves things like uh, putting non-slip mats down if you've got uh, a hard slippery floor uh, it involves things like using ramps avoiding steps um, to avoid steps so that there's no kind of tripping slipping falling that kind of thing or using ramps to get up into the car so that your dog's not having to jump up avoiding those high impact 
activities. It can also involve uh, having a nice, soft, conforming, comfortable bedding. So that could be something like a memory foam mattress, which would be absolutely ideal. They are a little bit more costly, but if you can't stretch to that, then just a really nice, soft, comfortable bed. Also being out of a draft. You know, there's lots of different things that we can do in a dog's environment to help reduce the impact of arthritis. And you'll have to excuse if you heard my phone going off. I'm actually recording this while I'm on call, so I can't turn my phone onto silent, which I normally do. So you might hear it kind of beeping away there. But um, yeah, hopefully I don't get called out because it's um, a bit difficult when I have to break out these podcast recordings into a couple of different sessions. I get out my flow. But anyway, that's by the by. So environmental modification is uh, step number three. Now, step number four is dietary supplementation. So some supplements are going to kind of if if you're feeding a uh, an arthritis diet then certain supplements are kind of included in that diet so there's no point in adding essential uh, extra essential fatty acids extra fish oils if you're feeding an arthritis diet there's little point in adding extra glucosamine and chondroitin but if you're not feeding an arthritis diet then those things you know certainly may be very beneficial now dietary supplementation is a tricky subject there's loads of supplements out there and actually very few of them have good evidence behind them and I'm a big believer that we should ideally be using things with good evidence it's all too easy to be sold the dream that this one supplement is going to you know completely cure uh, or eliminate the effects of your dog's arthritis you know that's a really emotional thing that people are selling you but those are really a lot of the time they're kind of marketing hype marketing words and actually the supplement you know it's really not able to provide the dream that it's selling so you know it may be that there's no physical harm to your dog there's no side effects to provide them but if you're spending money on these that could be used for a better more effective treatment you know then that is a significant side effect if you like Um, or if it means that you're delaying using other things that may make much more difference to your dog then you know that's something to consider as well but dietary supplementation is definitely something to consider um, my fifth thing to to think about with an arthritis management plan is uh, is is complementary therapies. So I'm thinking here things like physiotherapy, things like hydrotherapy, which are very important in maintaining joint mobility. So you know, stopping the joints seizing up. Uh, maintaining muscle mass as well so it's all too often that our older arthritic dogs with with um, an arthritic leg they stop using that leg so much so the the muscle starts to go which just kind of increases the mobility and the instability within a joint and you know it's a little bit of a vicious circle so complementary therapies can play an important role here and then exercise management ties into that so you want to be exercising your dog um, you know every day little and often is much much better than you know your dog resting all week and then going out for a big long walk in the at the weekend or running with you at the weekend when you go out and about so little and often regular exercise but also controlled exercise so you shouldn't be you know throwing balls for your dog you shouldn't be encouraging them to to leap and to jump around you don't want these really high impact activities of um, you know accelerating quickly of slamming the brakes on or of twisting and turning you know if they're playing rough and tumble with another dog then that's going to exacerbate the arthritis rather than just to help uh, maintain that joint mobility 
And then the final thing, which is very important, is painkilling anti-inflammatory medication. And there's a whole raft of different things here. So the the mainstay of uh, treatment for arthritis when it comes to medication is going to be our non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, uh, things like uh, Rimadyl, Onsior. You know, there's a whole load of different ones. Metacam, you know, there's loads of different brands out there and different active ingredients that all fall under the same class of drug. But then there are other things, so things like gabapentin, amantadine, paracetamol, Acetamol, you know, there's lots of different options out there as well. So we definitely need to consider painkilling and anti-inflammatory medication as well. And then the final thing we need to do for an arthritis management plan is we need to monitor how effective that is. So you can see there's lots of different things to consider. And it's not going to be the case of starting every single one of these things at the same time. Uh Although, you know, that would be fantastic. We should certainly be consider, considering, considering them and starting them where appropriate. But we want to monitor how effective they are. Be aware that arthritis is a degenerative condition. It's a progressive condition. So it is going to get worse with time. And it also does fluctuate with time. So you'll have kind of flare ups of arthritis where the pain does seem a lot worse, but then it settles down again. And then maybe it's even better than normal. Um, you know, so it fluctuates normally. But we want to be monitoring for that. We want to modify our plan where appropriate. So so if it is getting worse, we need to take steps to 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 get it back to a more your dog back to a more comfortable level. So we need to be again looking at this plan and seeing where we can make changes. And then once everything's working, we need to maintain that treatment. So there's no point starting everything, um, you know, making all these changes in the house, and then uh, you know if you move and you don't make any of those changes in your new house, then, you know, unsurprisingly, your dog is probably going to go backwards. So we need to be maintaining whatever it is that's working. So, you know, if we're taking all of these things into consideration, we stand the best chance of helping any dog who is starting to, you know, develop or starting to show signs of arthritis we're going to help keep them comfortable we're hopefully going to slow down the progression of that disease and make sure your dog's life is as happy as possible and then just bear in mind that I don't know your pet personally and so the information that I give in these podcast episodes is only a guide and it's not specific advice for any individual dog or cat so always check in with your vet if your pet has any health concerns you have any questions or if you're unsure about anything to do with your pet's care get your questions answered at callthevet.org and so the second part to Wendy's question was really how to help a dog who's showing signs of senility and dementia. So senility or dementia, it's also known as canine cognitive dysfunction, uh, is, is really common. Now, estimates vary that this affects a whopping 60% of dogs who are over eight years of age, um, with yeah over 60% showing signs of this problem, and then a more modest 14% may be suffering. So that depends on where you're looking at. But even if only 14% of dogs who are over eight years old are starting to suffer from senility or dementia, that's still a huge number of dogs. And only a fraction, only the tip of the iceberg are recognised as suffering from this problem and, you know, significant steps taken to make a difference. I think, you know, it's probably likely that a lot of us recognise this is a problem, but think that there's very little that we can can do. And there's certainly no magic bullet. There's no magic treatment and pill that can be given that will miraculously eliminate all signs of dementia or sen- 
sustainability. But there are things to do which we can come, um, which I'll come into. But uh, before I jump into those, um, I just wanted to talk about the signs of senility or dementia or canine cognitive dysfunction or whatever it is that you're calling it, um, just so that you can, you know, have a little think to see if your dog's suffering from it. So it is a problem in older dogs, typically, you know, so dogs over eight years of age, probably dogs, uh, you know, that are older than that. Uh, it's more common in so the older it's probably more likely. And we kind of have a, a an acronym for for the signs of senility, which is DISHA, so D I S H A, uh, and that breaks down as D, so is disorientation. So if you're finding that your dog is wandering uh, aimlessly into rooms, um, you know they look like they're not really sure where they're going or why they're you know why they're kind of walking around, uh, then you know that's one sign. I is for interaction reduction. So that's interaction with you, maybe other family members. They're just not interacting. They're not coming up to to see you as much. They're not wanting to to play. Now that can obviously be a sign of arthritis and lots of other things, you know. And so I'll go back to the last question. Um, but they might also be uh, interacting less with you know other pets in the house, you know, with their with their other dogs or other cats that they're normally quite uh, you know quite close and friendly with and playing. So interaction reduction is another sign of dementia. S is for sleep wake cycle changes so we'll typically get dogs who suddenly become awake at night rather than sleeping you know they might be getting up or waking up a lot earlier than they ever used to so you know that sounds like something is the case with wendy's dog uh yeah so sleep wake cycle changes h is for house soiling so if your dog's always been you know really good then they might be having accidents in the house so that could be either urinating or defecating now that can be signs of of other things so um, that can be signs of bladder problems. It can be signs of kidney disease, diabetes, uh, intestinal disease. So a little bit like the first question when I was talking about uh, that cat soiling. So uh, inappropriately out the litter box. Well, the same thing can be with dogs. There can be other medical problems, but house soiling is definitely one one thing that we can see in dogs with dementia. And then A of the disha is activity changes. So they generally become less active or maybe they start doing things that they never normally did. So just changes in their activity levels. So those are all signs of, of senility or dementia. And yeah, like I say, there are other things that can cause all of those problems. If your dog is showing one of those signs, then, you know, we have to ask the question. We have to just think, well, is there a problem with developing dementia? Um, if your dog is showing two or more signs, then, you know, that does make this diagnosis a lot more likely. Now, the problem with this diagnosis is that, you know, we don't have ready access to MRI machines. We don't have an unlimited funds to pay for, you know, advanced diagnostic imaging of the brain. So, you know, it's not something that we can easily diagnose. It's more a diagnosis of exclusion, meaning that we rule out any of the other common things that could be causing that problem. So, you know, we rule out arthritis, we rule out uh, bladder infections, kidney disease, you know, we try and uh, make sure that there's nothing else going on. And then that leaves us with a diagnosis of canine cognitive dysfunction. So, you know, once we've reached that diagnosis, well, what can we do about it? Well, if a dog has got mild to moderate senility, then we can try treatment with a number of different things. So we can try antioxidant supplements. So things like um, SAMI or milk thistle can help. Um, we can give herbal supplements. So something called um, ginkgo uh, biloba. 
I think I'm pronouncing that right, ginkgo biloba, may help to improve um, brain blood supply and improve brain brain function. Diets rich in medium chain fatty acids, which uh, are things found in things like coconut oil, but also in certain kind of specific um, brain diets, if you like. Um, prescription diets have got uh, uh, rich in medium chain fatty acids. And what that does is actually those, uh, those fatty acids get converted into something called ketones, which can be used as an extra energy source by the brain. Uh, so those are kind of things that we can give our dog now none of those things is going to definitely have an effect they may make no difference at all but they equally they may make some difference and in some cases they can make quite a lot of difference other supplements something called activate is another um, herbal supplement kind of dietary supplement that's specifically designed for uh, dogs suffering from canine cognitive dysfunction and again there's kind of mixed uh, mixed response to that i've certainly had patients myself who have responded very well to activate but equally a lot of them haven't it hasn't made any difference at all there's no harm in trying it apart from the cost involved so that's something else to to have a think about um, and what I'll do so there's a lot of information here and there's a lot of extra you know information that you might be interested in and I will leave links in the show notes to some further reading if you're interested in kind of learning more about these things that I'm mentioning and then other things that we can do just to help improve your older dog's brain function we can encourage them to use their brain so kind of a little bit of a use it or lose it situation so encourage into interactive play so you can use puzzle toys use food toys there's really um you know good things there so if you're feeding your dog in a bowl you know get rid of the bowl use things like a snuffle mat or a licky pad um use a maize bowl use specific food puzzles um treat balls just to you know give your dog something to do something you know they have to think a little bit to get their food you know that's stimulating and that's great for their well-being anyway with any any dog of any age and any mental kind of ability um but you know certainly getting your older dog to to use their brain a little bit more is important and then you can even you know teach your old new teach your old dog new tricks now you absolutely can do that um you know they might need to be simple tricks you're not going to get them doing backflips through hoops when they've never done that before but you know teaching your dog some new tricks or new skills you know um, a high five or a shake paw or uh, you know roll over or something like that um, you know it's great for bonding it's great for interacting with your older dog you know their interaction levels can reduce anyway they can get a little bit slower and that can cause us to you know maybe ignore them or not spend the time and, and the effort with them that we always used to so teaching your old dog new tricks anyway is always going to be a good thing but can definitely help them to use their brain a little bit more now if your dog is showing more serious signs of senility um, or if a more aggressive approach is preferred then there are some drug therapies that we can consider and there are a few options and licensing does vary depending on where you are in the world so um, one option is selegiline uh, and another option is propentof and another option is propentophylline, which um, is trading as vivitonin so those are all things that uh, are licensed for the use of you know of for dogs with canine cognitive dysfunction again in some dogs they seem to make a really huge amount of difference in in many dogs they either have no impact or they have a, a, a low impact so they never get a dog kind of quite back to how they were 
definitely if that's all that's going on if you can afford it they're definitely things to consider and i think very often we kind of pass this disease off as there's nothing that we can do about it but you know or, or there's nothing that's going to make any difference but you know absolutely i think especially if we're tackling things early then there's more chance that things will will work i've got no evidence to back that up but you know i kind of imagine if something is going to work it's going to work when the changes are only very mild um you know and if we're doing a few of these things again there's going to be more likelihood of these of these interact uh, interventions working as well as possible now the other thing with this disease is that actually it's very similar to alzheimer's disease in people so the changes in a dog's brain with dementia are very similar to people suffering from alzheimer's disease so this is clearly then something that is you know a pretty hot topic for human research and there's a lot of research uh, uh, looking into trying to find a, a cure for for alzheimer's disease so it may be very well be in the future that we've got some much more effective treatments and things like immunotherapy have been have been suggested as as potential treatments for this so you know definitely watch this space they're not these treatments aren't imminent certainly to my knowledge they're not imminent but in the future there may very well be something that we can actually very effectively use to treat cognitive dysfunction in dogs and then like i say if you want more information about all this then make sure you check out my article that i'll link in the show notes so that's it for this episode of the podcast. Be sure to subscribe if you're not already and you enjoyed today's show. And if you do have a spare couple of minutes and you, and you did enjoy the show, then I'd really appreciate it so much if you could leave me a review over on iTunes or over at ourpetshealth.com slash review. Uh, so reviews just help so much with podcast discovery and surfacing different podcasts in the, the algorithm. And you know, leaving a review will help more than you can imagine. So I'd appreciate that so much just to allow me to help more pets and if, you know, reviews aren't your thing and you'd rather just share this episode with a couple of your pet owning friends that you think would benefit from it, then that would also be hugely appreciated. Also, remember, too, that if you head over to callthevet.org, you can submit your question to be answered on an upcoming episode. And you'll also find all the links and downloads mentioned in today's show. But until next time, I'm Dr. Alex. Take care. You've been listening to Call the Vet. Be sure to rate, review, subscribe, and we'll see you on the next episode of the show that answers all of your pet questions.